because the national media was invested in a racial narrative, we missed a lot of important lessons about the Atlanta shooting story. Don Lemon gets into theology. We'll talk about that and a whole lot more on this week's Corey Truax Show. Before we do any of that, though, it is that time on the calendar where we are very quickly approaching Holy Week, Palm Sunday, and Maundy Thursday, Silent Saturday, Easter Sunday morning, or Resurrection Sunday, whatever you prefer. So the first part of our first segment will be on that. And then I have plenty of news and thoughts and commentary from the world around us for the rest of the show. My name is Corey Truax. Thank you for listening to The Corey Truax Show on his radio talk 89.7 and 91.9 and wherever you find podcasts. I am grateful that you give us time every week. I also get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. That is over in Greenville. We meet at 10.30 on Sunday mornings. You are invited. We also have Easter coming up here soon. This should be the episode right before Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday are coming up and you are invited. 10.30 Sunday mornings. I'll We'll be finishing up this this round of sermons in the Gospel of Mark on Easter Sunday as well. We just came through a text I might touch on here in a second when we talk Palm Sunday. Let's get to work. If you don't know the Palm Sunday story, the general version is this. You have Jesus going into the last week of his life, entering Jerusalem, and his name and renown has gone before him. He's built quite the reputation as healer. Dominator of nature through calming storms. Dominator of the spiritual realm through the casting out of demons. Dominator of the effect of the fall through healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and speaking to the dumb. He has shown himself to be authoritative over the scribes and the Pharisees through his authoritative teaching and understanding of the Old Testament law and his new prophetic words that he is giving out and interpreting. Jesus has shown himself to be exactly who he says he is, and he has gathered a following. So as he goes into Jerusalem, he's greeted as if he were a coming king. People put out palm branches, and they chant, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, which means help us, save us, rescue us. And I'm sure every person in that in that crowd that was chanting it had a different thing for which they wanted to from which they wanted to be rescued. But generalized, if you put them all together, you have to assume that one of the main rescues they wanted was from Rome. Jesus, come rescue us and restore the kingdom of Saul and Solomon and David. Come and rescue us from Roman rule and rule your people. Rule let, let the people of God be independent in their own kingdom once again on this one geographic location for this period of time. That was the chant. That's the facts of the case, the facts of what happened in the scripture. When you look at when you look at Palm Sunday, you get all of the vestiges of a king taking his kingdom. He rides in on a beast. This happened to be a cult. He's going to the temple where they would install one. He is being greeted by throngs of people, very happy to see him there. There is every reason to see him as, uh, for that matter, there's feast. Yeah, it's another one. If a king is being installed, there's a big feast, and there's a, there is a big meal that week. It's the Lord's Supper as we, we take it on to the future. It looks like a king is being crowned, but we all know where it ends. He doesn't end up on a crown. He ends up on a cross. And I've taught this enough on this show, and that I don't want to get back 
into all the details, but I would give you a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote on this. I, I think the Bonhoeffer quote is, a king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. As I've mentioned on the show in the past, it actually is from the cross that Jesus does his royal work. He says, it is finished. What is finished? The work of redemption has been complete. God and man can be reconciled. It, was a, it is after his, it is finished declaration and giving up the ghost that the, the curtain that had separated the people of God from the holy of holies in the temple was torn from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, it was torn open. And so we have Palm Sunday, where we have a bunch of people crying out for help, and, and knowing some number of them would be later crying, crucify him, just days later. It gives us at least a chance to focus on, on, the, on the work of Christ that he did this week, 2,000 years ago, how it's changed the world, it's changed all of our lives. It, it is both cosmic in that it changed the course of history and the world. It's also very personal. It's very imminent that it changed your world, changed my world, your life, my life. And so while I, encourage, I am encouraging you this week to focus on the work of Jesus during this week, through Palm Sunday, going into all of these, these Holy Week holidays, I think, this, I think this year what I want to highlight is the calling of those voices. You know, I, I've said on the show a good bit. It's important when you read Scripture to know who you're not. When you read stories of Jesus, you, you need to know you're, you're not Jesus in the story. When you read stories of David or Moses or Abraham, you are not the protagonist. You're a secondary character if you're in the character if there's a way to put yourself in the story at all. But I know me, maybe caught up with the crowd, maybe you'd be caught up with the crowd singing Hosanna in the highest. Maybe you and me would be caught up singing, help us, rescue us, save us. What I want to highlight is that when we sing rescue us, save us, we tend to be saying, Lord, save us from the emotional turmoil I'm in. Save me from the emotional trauma I've experienced. Save me from the financial disaster that has beset me. Save me from the disaster my own behavior has caused. And there's rescue for those things. The work of cosmic recreation that Jesus makes all things new, all things right, these, these things will be made new. But this week in particular, let's remember that we call for much too small a rescue. He did not just come to rescue you from your problems. He came to rescue you from your biggest problem, sin and separation from God. So as we sing it this week and say it this week, Hosanna, Hosanna, let it be a reminder that the real thing that we need saving from is our sin. And that's the work of the resurrection weekend, the work of the cross, beating sin, absorbing the wrath of God, and then beating death itself in the resurrection. So there's your Palm Sunday reflection. We, we will keep it on theology here on the Corey Truex Show on WHRT 91.9 and 89.7 and wherever you find podcasts by moving here next. There was some theology spoken over on CNN by a guy named Don Lemon here recently that I wanted to respond to. 
my primary interest is theological in nature. I even come at culture and at politics from a, from a biblical worldview. That's what I want to do. Come, come at everything. Come at the financial world. Come at parenting, education. Try to come at everything from that Christian worldview. And when a secular world wants to try to speak into spiritual things, I believe they're asking to be responded to. So, Don Lemon from CNN. He is, an, is a guy who re- fairly recently apparently got engaged to another guy. And so, he is brought onto the TV show The View to talk about it. Which is odd to me. Odd choice. Catholic doctrine, Christian doctrine, is that marriage is between one man and one woman. And all the Catholic Church did was reaffirm that they're not changing their mind after 2,000 years. They're going to have the same doctrine. And the view wants to respond to it. They don't bring on another theologian. They don't bring on anyone with any scriptural knowledge. They just bring on a gay person. What kind of expertise does Don Lemon have on these matters? Answer, none. And you will find that to be the case as he tries to give out his own theology. So, this is Don Lemon. He's being interviewed by Megan McCain on The View. He had some things to say about God, whatever God he's talking about. I'm assuming he means the God, the, he's, he's meaning the Christian God, the God of the Bible. And so, let's see what he knows and what he doesn't know. Here is Megan McCain and Don Lemon. We learned that the Vatican has said that the Catholic Church won't bless same-sex unions, quote, since God cannot bless sin. They go on to say that this does not imply a judgment on persons. But I want to know, do you think this sends a damaging message? And how do you feel about that, given that obviously you are now engaged and going to get married? One quick thing. Why on earth would it change? This is a weird part of the leftist worldview. Institutions that in part built, built civilization don't change their mind with the whims of the age. And they're, like, surprised by it. Do they actually think that there's a time coming or just, like, in mass, Christianity is going to be like, yeah, we just, we're just changing our mind? What a weird expectation to have anyway. Well, I think there are... Listen, I respect people's right to believe in whatever they want to believe in their God. But if you believe in something that hurts another person that, or that does not give someone the same rights or freedoms not necessarily under the Constitution, because this is under God. Uh, I, I think that that's wrong. And I think that the, the Catholic Church and many other churches really need to reexamine themselves and their teachings because... I can't get over how arrogant that is. And listen, if anyone understands arrogance, it's me. He just declares, if you believe something that's in dis- disagreement with him, that w- would not offer someone approval for whatever it is they think and feel about themselves... Then he just says, I just think that's wrong. Okay, for Don Lemon and for us, as we discuss with the secular world the idea of morality, why, A, do you think what you think, but B, why would I care again? I mean, I care about you. I care about what you think as a person. Why are you under the impression you have moral authority? What gave you that idea that you declaring... I, it's, it's what I think. It's what I feel. And therefore, you should follow after it. You know, that's not the Christian idea. This is why it's, it's full, it's more fully, uh, I mean, excuse me, even more arrogant. He says, the, the church should re-examine. Well, so for 2,000 years, we've had an understanding of marriage. You think we should re-examine that because you just think so? Well, I don't think what they're, th- what they're doing is quite kind and quite nice. 
And so thousands of years of church history and a very clear biblical text, you guys should rethink it just because I want you to. This is a declaring that that, that person is God. You're, that's what Don Lemon is doing there. My morality is superior to yours. I am God. Agree with me. And this is something that a leftist secular worldview will birth. That is not what God is about. God is not about hindering people or even judging people. Wow. God is not about hindering people or judging people. I don't really know what he means by hindering. I know that that's not true throughout Scripture. God will hinder the plans of his ch- even his own children if it's not for their best. He will hinder the, 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 the pagan leader, the pagan people. God will hinder their plans if that's what hinder means. But he says, God is not about judging people. Listen, Don, read like page, just a couple pages in. This doesn't even take long, man. We get the first sin in the garden. There is judgment given. Like, guys, this is that cl- early, early on in the Bible. Sin comes into the world. The, some of the first things God does is judge sin. Adam, by the work of your brow, by the sweat of your brow, you will be able to provide for yourself. Woman, there will be pain in the birth of your children. Your desire will be for your husband. Serpent, you will crawl on the ground and get out of the garden. You're out of the Garden of Eden. I'm even going to put an angel here and a spinning sword to keep you out of here. Like, pick up the Bible for a minute. Just read a book. You don't even need some massive systematic, like, oh, this is really nuanced. Yeah, God does some judging here. No, this is just like happens really early on. Not to mention the, the systematic world of God setting up Oh, where is that? In Isaiah, maybe? It it was quoted in the the notes on the Constitutional Convention that somewhere in Isaiah says, God is lawgiver, God is judge, God is king, or maybe it's in different order than that. But that was the idea of the three branches of government. God is king, God is lawgiver, God is judge, so God is executive, God is legislator, God is judicial. We could go on and on about the judgments of God. What do you think Jesus is talking about? When he says, in the end times, there will be wheats and tares. And by the end time, I mean the end of days. When all things are over, there will be wheats and tares. There will be separated. There will be lambs and goats, and they will be separated. God will make judgment. I don't know where Don Lemon got his theology. It has nothing to do with the Bible. It's a good message for us to know that the world thinks this thing, that God wouldn't judge. God's got no judgment. You even have the trope in the culture that says, only God can judge me. Well, one, not true, but two, that should terrify you. Because let me tell you, if only God can judge you, he's going to. And he has given us a clear warning. And from that warning, then a winsome invitation. Come in. Repent of your sin. Leave it behind. Follow me. This is the invitation to the sinner. There is judgment for the sinner. And there's an invitation to get out from underneath that judgment. And that that judgment would go somewhere else. Here we are coming up on Easter. It's a good reminder. Does God judge? He sure does. And all of the sin and the hurt and the, the muck and the mire of this world will be judged. It will be made right. And for your sin, Don Lemon, and for your sin, listener, for anyone hearing this, You will be judged for your sin, or Jesus will be judged for your sin.
When Jesus comes onto the scene, John the Baptist declares, This is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Your sins can be on Jesus and punished on the cross, or they can be punished in eternity, but be clear on this. God is judge, and judgment is coming that must be reckoned with. When we come back, I have one other other thought from Don Lemon, because he continues to talk about theology. Then I want to talk about the Atlanta shooting, some things we missed there. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Talk 91.9 and 89.7 WHRT. Also, thank you for listening on the podcast, wherever it is you find podcasts. That number continues to just tick on up there a little bit as we continue to grow. That is by your effort and not my excellence. I am well aware. So thank you for sharing the show when you do and how you do. You can also find me, Corey Truax, your humble host, your host on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there, and I hope you will. Don Lemon continues to talk theology. What I notice about Don Lemon on CNN talking theology is he's much like the secular world in that the the real God is his own feelings. The real God is his own self-awareness, self-importance, self-image. And so anything that would challenge his God must be challenged. It must be jettisoned. And if you don't, you're just a mean person. And being a mean person is the worst thing you can be. That's, that's Don Lemon's theology. So first he says here from segment one, God does not judge, which is just literally disproven within pages of picking up your Bible. Just a colossally ignorant thing to say. And we responded to it. I hope you have some tools now to respond to such a thing when someone says God doesn't judge. Yeah, except for that whole Garden of Eden thing and then throughout the rest of the whole book and a coming judgment in the end where we separate sheep, goats, wheats, tares, all that stuff. Now, for whatever reason, Don Lemon decided to continue to wax eloquently, not really, but to wax philosophically on how to handle religion and teach religion in the country. Again, I don't know why we're asking him about this stuff, but let's listen more because I want to respond to another point he made on this. This is more of Don Lemon. And we also have to start uh, being realistic about God and the Bible. And if you are a person... Agreed. You got to be realistic about God and the Bible, which would require, because God, by the way, he he reveals himself in two ways. One is general revelation. So God reveals himself to be creative in that he makes beautiful skies, mountains, lakes, oceans. We have beauty in the world. He is creative. He is ordered that the solar system, that the seasons, that everything works together, that even for that matter, the way animals interact with each other and the ecosystems, uh, they, how they need each other, the activity of the other. God is beautiful, creative. He's, he's, a, he's a thinker in that he has everything in an orderly fashion. We learn about God somewhat generally, but then we learn about God in a special way. Because all we can do by looking at nature is know that God has creativity and God has order, but that is where that ends. So then who is this God? How can I get to know him? He revealed himself in the person of Jesus and in the pages of Scripture. That's how we get to know this God, a special revelation. So to Don Lemon, yes, we do need to get very serious about God in the Bible. And he's revealed, God has revealed himself in the scriptures. Scripture's the only way to really know who he is. And let's dig in there and find out who he is and what he's like. 
percent of faith in this country, and you know America is built on faith and religious freedom, then we have to, I think, a good way of starting is to present the true identity of Jesus, and that is as a black or a brown person, rather than someone who looks like a white hippie from uh, Sweden or Norway. And I think we should start with a true depiction of what Jesus looked like and put that in your home, either a black Jesus or a brown Jesus, um, because we knew Jesus looked more like a Muslim or someone who was dark rather than someone who was blonde, uh, a blonde-looking carpenter. And then the, there's a little bit of a smirk on his face. Like, I think he thinks he's saying something revolutionary. And I could just make, I could make fun of him, but I think he's instructive to a secular world. The secular world tends to look at Christianity and look down on us. They think they know more. Gets them under so much. It's rare that I've run into a non-believer who thinks I know more about my own faith and my own Bible than they do. Most of the non-believers I interact with, they think they know everything. They grew up in church, and so they just think they know, man. They have figured out this Christianity thing. They don't, they're not humble enough to ask any questions, and that's Don Lemon here. Like, he's got this grin on his face like, we got to present the real Jesus, a, a brown Jesus. Okay? Do you, do you think you're surprising me? Do you think you're scandalizing me in some way? Yeah, I'm not surprised. Now, not a, not a black Jesus. I don't even know if you want to say brown Jesus. He's an Arab Jew. When you look back through that lineage in Matthew, Jesus is those... Uh, there's a lineage in Matthew where you can find J- Jewish and other Arab Middle Eastern people. So that's, that's what he looks like. It's not uh, only in this world where we obsess over race would that be what we, what we obsess over when it comes to Jesus. And it, and it wouldn't change the, any of his teachings. Jesus, uh, he, I don't know why we would take advice on this from Don Lemon, by the way. He's telling you even what icons to put in your house, like how to view Jesus. I admit, I, I think there is some damaging nature of the Romantic period in art in the one right before that. Oh, I forgot my art history for a second here. I don't remember what the era was before the Romantic period. Is that the Renaissance? Yeah, it goes Renaissance and Romantic. So we get a lot of religious art in the Renaissance, in the Romantic period, and I don't think they painted Jesus as a Norwegian, but he does look like Scottish or something, or British. He's just dark-haired, white-skinned, and blue-eyed. And So no, that's, that's not an accurate depiction. It would be good for American Christians in the, and Christians in the Western world to see a Jesus who doesn't look like them to get a hold of the fact that their the faith is uh was, came out of the Middle East that it's ancient it, it didn't start here that that would be helpful, but for Don Lemon in the end it it changes nothing about what he said. This is super important for all of us to get. Truth is not racialized. Truth is not genderized. Truth is not ethnicized in any way. The truth is the truth is the truth is the truth. It doesn't matter who said it. It doesn't matter what the skin color was. It doesn't matter what the gender was or the sexuality or or the experience or anything else. Jesus spoke the truth no matter what he looked like. And so Don Lemon, for whatever reason, thinks he has some kind of special insight into these things. Let us take this in two ways. One, we can make fun of Don Lemon a little bit. He obviously knows nothing about Christianity and has nothing to offer in thinking about the religious world. But second, he is an indicator of the secular world. And so in an, in an interpersonal relationship, in a one-on-one conversation, I would be handling Don Lemon quite differently. I'd be trying to ask some questions about where he got what he's saying. 
you know, ultimately that, that first clip and this one together come to one question. It's a question of authority. You know, Don Lemon said in that first clip that he just thinks. If you have a belief system that would tell anybody that there's an ethic about anything, he doesn't think that's right. Okay, but who are you? Why, do, why would I care like, what you think about these things? Not that I don't care about you, but you're not authority over me. And so then being able to say, oh, because you're not an authority over me, and I'm also not an authority over me, I submit myself to the Scriptures. I submit myself to the God of the Bible. So you're invited to that. You're invited to seek out Jesus. You're invited to seek out the Jesus of the Scriptures, not one you've made up. And that might need to be something you know as you interact with a rapidly secularizing world that Don Lemon is quite indicative of a lot of unbelievers out there. Now, Don Lemon is on CNN, which is based in Atlanta. And Atlanta just had a really tragic shooting. See what I did there? Professional broadcaster, had to find a segue. So, Lemon, CNN, Atlanta, Atlanta shooting. So, you know what? You got to give me some applause right now wherever you're listening because I was able to tie the two together in some way. Anyway, that's just me tuning my own horn about a segue. This was tragic, obviously. All mass shootings are tragic and super sad. Before getting into the analysis of what, of how the media has covered it and what we can learn, it is important to take a deep breath and remember, eight people are dead. Eight, eight families are affected, more, probably more than that. So I want to be sensitive to that and say that first. The facts of the case are... We have this. We have this guy. I'm not going to say his name. Most conservative media has started not saying the names of mass killers. There is at least some evidence that says fame and renown is one of the reasons that they do it. And so I'm not going to say his name. You all know the story by now. Went into two different places in Atlanta, killed eight people. I think um, six Asian people and two white people. He's arrested, and he says the reason is his own sex addiction, and that these places were too much of a temptation for him, and so he was taking radical action to save his own soul, to save himself from the sins that that he would so easily commit. Now, that's the facts of the case. As is often the case with stories, how the media covered the story ends up being a story unto itself. It's really the angle I want to take on this for a little while. The media responded terribly to this. From CNN and MSNBC, the New York Times, Washington Post, that entire group. They are corrupt. The American media is a corrupt institution, and this Atlanta shooting story illustrates it in a really profound way. A white guy shot some not-white people, and also, by the way, two white people, and they made a decision. It's racism. On the spot, we, we need no evidence. We need no interviews done. All we know is a white person shot, not white people. All we know is this. White supremacy is immediately the case. And they held on to it for, for dear life with no, with no evidence and no reason for it. There was actually one of these insane people from the root, the right to the root, said the words, we don't need any evidence. A white person did violence against... Non-white people. We don't need anything else from that. The act itself is racist. 
That's an unfalsifiable claim. You're making a claim that cannot be proven false, and you have no evidence for it. You're just declaring truth over other people. And the fact that the media did that, they immediately said, it's stop Asian hate, hashtag stop Asian hate, it's, it's Asian hate crimes. That's the thing, because racism runs everything. It's endemic in the country. Because they did that, they obscured some important other things that need to get talked about. All they know is that a white man did something, and therefore we got to destroy it. We got to, we got to, uh, we got to talk about racism. You know, my point here is proved even further. In that, right around the same time, there was that horrific story out of Rochester. Some of you might have heard it, where two teenage boys went into the home of a mentally ill man, doused him with some kind of flammable liquid, set him on fire watched him burn for a little while, and left. That man eventually died. It, ha- it just so happens that those were two black teenagers, and a white man was the victim. That story really got no national coverage, while the immediate national coverage of this shooting is a white guy did it with some non-white victims This should be the news for the next several weeks, and we know racism caused it. You can see just really clearly the the bias here. I could go on on that bias, but... You know, even after it becomes clear that maybe there was not a, a racial animus or a racial motivation, I noticed that the media just switched bad guys because that's all this media needs. They know who the bad guys are and they want to go after the bad guys. And so if it can't be white supremacy, well, maybe it's Christianity. Maybe this guy was getting bad teaching. Maybe it's the purity culture of Christianity. And I have some, some thoughts on that. But Right now, i got to focus on the media. In part, the media served up a problem here because all they have is their narrative. All they have is their agenda. They know that every story must serve their ends. And their ends are, are left-wing. It's leftism. And to feed their own narratives that white supremacy runs everything, racism is endemic, and Christianity is bad. But them doing that obscured some things. For example, I discovered through these stories that there are websites out there where people can find certain massage parlors that are not just massage parlors. This is happening in the United States of America, that we have brothels with the front of a massage parlor. And those are primarily staffed, if we can use that word, by Asian immigrants. Do you know how an Asian woman ends up in that situation? It is not of her own volition. You think there's a bunch of girls out in South Korea and China right now? Young, young girls in their dreams to come to America as a prostitute? No, these have been victimized women. They've been trafficked. In the United States of America, right under our noses, they are being abused and used by men. But we didn't get to talk about that. 
we get we didn't get to talk about a very real problem human trafficking sex trafficking and and finding out who brought these women here put them in the situation they were in and prosecuting them to the fullest extent of the law no we didn't get to talk about that because white supremacy and christianity need to be hit got to get them we didn't get to talk about what I have now have been talking about for a while, a very real public health crisis, which is the pornography industry. This guy who did the shooting in Atlanta apparently had plans to go down to Florida next and shoot up a studio, apparently, that makes pornography. We have, a, we have an incredible problem with pornography use, pornography abuse, all of its abuse to me. The idea of sex addiction itself being a very real thing. We didn't really get to talk about any of those. These very important things because we had to go after white supremacy. We had to make it. We had to make an assumption. Racism happened. That's all we know. Oh, it might not have been racism. Well, maybe it was Christianity. Maybe they did it. I know that I sound like I'm just going after the media, and I am, but that's not all I'm doing. They're a corrupt institution, and we should stop really listening to them. I would also say that, by the way, of folks that do the a lot on Fox, a lot of the garbage on OAN, Newsmax, there's very few good news sources. And I'm going after the media right now, but I'm also doing it in a way to say, here's some things they missed. Don't, don't miss that we have a human trafficking problem. Don't miss that we have a real pornography problem. Don't miss those things. Now, when we come back, there is another, there's a criticism here I do want to get to. I don't want to spend a ton of time on, time on it, but after the media decided it, maybe it wasn't racism, maybe it's something to do with Christianity and a problem inside the faith, of course you know I'm going to want to address that. And so let's talk about the Christian sexual ethic and how that affects this story. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on WHRT 91.9 and wherever you find podcasts. show now for over six years and admittedly this will be the first time we get into what we're about to get into with as much detail as it is and that is the biblical sexual ethic so welcome to my first try at that on the Corey Truax show on his radio talk 91.9 and 89.7 and wherever you find podcasts thank you for listening it's a lot to do so let's get right to it part of what's come out of the Atlanta shooting because folks just want to attack Christianity is to attack the biblical sexual ethic or the teachings on sexuality and Christianity. Now, let me be clear. As with most things, there have been parts and time periods of Christianity that have messed this up. They have gotten it wrong. So, to, to be clear, the folks I, I've heard that, uh, that have had taught to them, uh, ladies, you are responsible for a man's uh, sin because you you didn't cover up or... You, you dressed in a way that was provocative, and so a man sinned, and it's your fault. I mean, let's, to be, I have to be clear on that point. Uh, ladies, yeah, you have a responsibility to your God and to yourself to, to, for modesty. But a man is also responsible for himself, for his own self-control, for his own wandering eye, for his own, for his own thoughts. So just for example, yeah, well, you, you've heard some, some, terrible, some terrible things about sexuality from the church in the past like that like blaming women for the actions and thoughts of men. There have been parts of Christianity that have talked about sexual attraction itself as some kind of thing to avoid and 
we've terrified kids in this way as they come up through their adolescence and teen years, and they're attracted and then start feeling bad about it, where the, the natural biblical sexual ethic is, as we're going to see, is sex is something God came up with. The sexual act is uh, an invention of, of our God, and, there, and therefore physical attraction isn't itself any kind of sin. It's quite quite natural reaction uh, during during life. And so, uh, yeah, there's been some things handled poorly. Even, even in this Atlanta shooting case, there have been folks trying to uh, trying to critique Christianity's use of the word temptation, that these women could even be temptations. Well, that's not they're not calling Christianity would not call these women the temptation, the the act, the sin, the siren song of sin, the the whispering of the enemy in your in your heart, in your ear, go do this, this is what will satisfy you. These that, that is the temptation. So to be clear, I want to say, yeah, the church has gotten some of this wrong, but let's not obsess over that. Let's obsess over getting it right. So when it comes to sexual ethics, the secular world cycles through and borrows from some historic, philosophical, articulated sexual ethics. For example... The realists in history talked about sexuality as purely appetite. It is an appetite, just like food, uh, and therefore it has to be satiated. And so whatever ethics and taboos we have around that, we got to think about sex as just an appetite. Plato, the philosopher, talked about it animalistically, that it basically only only to fulfill whatever animalistic uh, instincts that the human has. In the Romantic period, and this is in part where we live now, the Romantic period of sexuality talked about sexuality as self, or excuse me, creative self-expression. So these are the ethics that have made up the world. That sex is just an appetite to fulfill. The sexual act is this animalistic urges and reactions to express yourself and to get what you need. That has been the world's thinking on sexuality. So what's the Bible say? Well, first... Let's look at just the biblical idea, or the biblical demeanor. That's a better word. Demeanor towards sexuality. There has been, I'm sure, in some Christian circles, some desire to avoid this topic altogether. And they, and in that effort, turn sexuality into something that people have shame around. But I could, with not too much effort, take you to the pages of Scripture and make a lot of you blush with some of the things you'll find there. Let's, let's build the ethic, though. We go to Genesis 2. Yeah, Genesis 2. God presents Eve to Adam, uh, presents an a uncovered woman to an uncovered man, and his reaction is to break out into song or poetry, however you see that. What, when he has that bone of my bone, flesh, is my, flesh of my flesh moment, that is a song or a poem that was his reaction to woman being Woman being, uh, woman being presented to him. You can go to Song of Solomon on this same topic. It is a work of wisdom and worship about a lot of things, but in part, it is this rapturous work over the gift, the joy of sexuality. So you have Adam and Eve. You got the book of Song of Solomon. For that matter, you have 1 Corinthians, I think it's 5 or 6, where sexuality is commanded inside of marriage. And so where there has been the idea of prudishness inside of Christianity and thinking through 
sexuality. That's been a, it's been an error. It's been one of the ditches the church has fallen in, but that's not the biblical ethic. So the biblical ethic has a demeanor towards sexuality that is quite positive on one side. Then the Bible will also talk about sexuality as part of our, or at least the idolatrous pursuit of sexuality that, that can happen in the, in the human comes from a broken uh, the, the broken nature of having lived in a, being in a sin-sick world. And so the Bible gives us both things. Sexuality, as God intended, quite positively inclined, and then recognizing there is the human instincts toward sexuality that can be broken and idolatrous, which lead to a, a ton of wreckage. C.S. Lewis had a great illustration about this in one of his books. He said, if we went to a planet where you saw people watching, for entertainment, watching other people eat or looking at pictures of food, it, we, would, we would say this is a disordered appetite. And he applied that to sexu- sexuality in one way. So one of the ways that the broken sexual appetite works itself out is the pursuit of images, right? So it's a good appetite. Sexuality is a good appetite, just like food is a good appetite, but it can be disordered. And that's how C.S. Lewis did it. So then... In right order, this good thing, what has, what has the Bible given us for, to, to order it rightly? And the answer is a boundary called a covenant. Sex comes, sexuality comes, in the biblical sexual ethic, inside of a covenant called marriage. It's a very biblical word. It's not a contract. It's not just a, it's not a, because uh, a contract is a, a document based on if then. If you do A, then I will do B. That is not a marriage vow. That is not a marriage covenant. When folks get up to give their vows, it is never, uh, if, if you make this much money and provide this standard of living, then I will behave in these ways. And then he says back, and if you will maintain your figure to be these measurements over this period of time, then I will behave in this way. Marriage is not if-then statements. It is a covenant. I pledge myself to you. And so, inside that covenant, this, this becoming one flesh that Genesis gives us, you have, the sexual, you have sexuality practiced in that type of intimacy. So you have, in the biblical view, the condition for sexuality is a binding covenant, Whereas in that romantic view I mentioned earlier where they talk about sexuality as creative self-expression, in the biblical view, it is self-giving. The the same way the entire idea of marriage is self-giving, becoming one flesh together. Now this is where it can get uncomfortable here in a second because God works in covenants. He had covenants with Abraham, Noah, David. He has the covenant of grace that we are operating in now. And Marriage itself is a covenant. The thing that the the Lord likes to do with covenants is he got the people together to remind them of him, remind of the covenant often. So they would get together and re-read the covenant, the covenant, reread the scriptures. They would have ceremonies and different types of symbols in the in the temple or the tabernacle throughout the city to remind people of the covenant. And in the, the biblical narrative regarding marriage and sexuality, that's actually what the sexual act is in marriage. This covenant that we've made to become one flesh, 
I am all yours and you are all mine. We are dedicated to one another. Not contractually, not if then, but we are all, all of each other's. It's in one flesh union. Every time in a marriage, sexuality is revisited, you're revisiting the covenant, recommitting yourselves to one another. And so then think what sexuality means then outside of a covenant. It is the pledging of oneself to somebody with no actual emotional or mental intent to be utterly pledged to that person. You don't have to go too far to find somebody that will say that of their own sexual experience when it's been outside of the biblical bonds of covenant. Sexuality, sharing that with somebody, is giving a part of yourself to somebody you can never get back. That's the intention of sexuality. That one flesh union that should only be coming in marriage. And so this narrative being given out about that Atlanta shooter, that the Christian sexual ethic is backward, and that's what causes him to do what he did. I I admit the church has gotten it wrong. We've taught it poorly. But there is a developed sexual ethic that I just gave gave you. The Bible would say of, of sexuality, the demeanor of the Bible towards sexuality is positive, then recognizing in the human nature the approach to sex can be broken because of sin, and then inside the covenant of marriage, the one flesh union, the act is to be celebrated as a good gift that God has given us. All right, I only got five more minutes here to do a few other items. Those of you who listen with regularity know that my hobby horse as of late has been this leftist wokeism that has caused a lot of the cancellations of people's and so I want to play for you a piece of audio from Sarah Silverman. Not, a, not someone I appreciate. You know, I love comedy. She is not good at it. She is the type of person that does comedy in a way that just does gross things. And if she can be gross and shocking enough, you're supposed to laugh at her. That was her strategy. But the, the comedy world is one, even though it's secular, even though it's often, they're often atheists, there's a, a really odd relationship between comedy and atheism. George Carlin showed that early on, probably the best there ever was. Well, Cosby was probably the best there ever was. But there's a lot of atheism inside comedy. Anyway, it is in that realm that they like to push. That's what jokes are. Jokes are supposed to make you a little uncomfortable sometimes. And so here's Sarah Silverman talking about how woke culture is ruining things because of that cancel culture. And I play this for you to encourage you. The, the left and right, liberalism and conservatism are far apart on lots of things, but there does seem to be some growing unity that this cancel culture stuff has to end. This is Sarah Silverman. It's the absolutist-ness of the party I am in that is such a turnoff to me. It's so f***ing elitist. <laughs> you know, for something called progressive... It allows for zero progress. What a great point. It's a graceless system. The things that they demand of you, they decided they existed like a couple years ago. They started coming up with words and terms and gender spectrums. And if you don't just sign up immediately the first time you heard it, and if, oh man, how dare you if you did not take the initiative to go learn the fake world they were creating, they will destroy you. And even on the left here, Sarah Silverman is seeing that. It's all or nothing, no steps toward all or f***ing nothing. Again, righteousness porn. 
And I've been thinking about this a lot. Just If you don't know that term, righteousness porn, it's just the idea of making yourself feel good by doing what you perceive to be righteous, and so there, therefore you can build some, some self-worth, self-attainment for that. In general, I, I just, I don't know that I want to be associated with any party. I really, I think I don't want to be associated with any party anymore. It just, it comes with too much baggage. Every party. It comes with so much fucking baggage that no ideas can be taken at face value. And without ideas, what are we? This woman sounds like me. I also don't feel at home in any given party. And that's how she's now feeling there out on the left. And again, I'm telling you that as an encouragement. There's all kinds of reasons to be discouraged with the discourse with your culture, with your country right now, all that's true. But it, at least there does seem to be some safeguard coming, even a, a, a backlash from the left on part of the left's excesses. And Sarah Silverman is just one more. We've heard it recently from Bill Maher. We've had some others. And so uh, I just want to encourage you with that. Now, in the last minute here, I do want to remind you, we are going into Holy Week. That starts on Palm Sunday. Every... The, the entire Christian life is sacred. Everything you do, you parent, you mar- the, way you're, the way you serve your spouse, the way you serve in church, the way you just do your nine-to-five job, everything is sacred. The whole Christian life is sacred. And whatever you do, do all the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, do all the glory of God. I will admit to you, though, this week does usually get to me. It's a, a service. Uh, the, the church calendar serves me in a way that gets me to focus on the work of Jesus. That knowing what was before him left the glories of heaven, not thinking equality with God was something to grasp, but came here to do this work for me and for you. And I am asking you, do not let this Holy Week that you're about to go into get by you. Focus on it. Focus on the meaning of it. If you're listening to me live on that Saturday morning, Holy Week starts tomorrow. Don't let it get by without you focusing on the work of Jesus. If you have nowhere to spend, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, you're invited to Beachwood Church, 10.30 Sunday mornings. I'll be back with another new edition of The Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.